0: Before we get started with this episode of 80 Proof Politics, I just wanted to take a minute to say thanks. You know, when we launched back in early June, we had no idea how many people would be interested in a podcast about federal advocacy. But I am thrilled to tell you that this week we passed the 1,000 mark. What's even more remarkable to me is that 80 Proof has gone global. We now have listeners from coast to coast in Canada, as far away as Thailand, Bolivia, France, the UK, and even the Kingdom of Jordan. I also wanted to tell you that there are just three episodes remaining in Season 1, and then we're going to take a bit of a break to to distill a new batch of 80-proof for you. So in the meantime, if you have any suggestions for future guest experts or any topics that you'd like to hear about, Send us your ideas at 80proofpolitics at gmail.com or tweet them at 80politics. And if you're an advocate or you work with an organization that wants to get your message out via 80proof get it disseminated to our broad base of listeners, sponsorships are available. And again, contact us at 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening. Enjoy the show.
1: I stayed at Marquette, um, got a master's degree at Marquette, and I got a master's degree in British and Irish history. And I can tell you this, there's nothing that's less likely to get you a job than getting a, a master's degree in British and Irish history.
0: On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all. What goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to this episode of 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. We're broadcasting today for the Boxcar Tavern at 224 7th Street Northeast. It is a great spot that, while it opened in 2011, it's old-school charm its 18th century saloon decor might lead you to believe that it's been open ever since they laid the first brick Eastern Market which is right across the street they've got a vibrant happy hour every weekday from 4 to 7 with drink and food specials they got one of the best brunches on Capitol Hill on the weekends and the owner Andy wants me to tell you about their NFL specials throughout the regular season Anytime there's a game on, they'll have drink and food specials. So that's Sunday night, or Sunday, Sunday night, Monday, and Thursday. Plus, I've found this a great place to stop off on the way to a Nats game if I'm coming from downtown or Capitol Hill because it's convenient, it's away from the crowd, and it's easy to get to the park from here. Well, the reason we're here today is our guest Bert, John Fury, works just around the corner. John, welcome to 80 Proof, and cheers, brother.
1: Hey, cheers, brother.
0: I hope the traffic wasn't too bad getting over here.
1: Very tough foot traffic, but I was able to get here in about three minutes, which is Isn't great. Isn't it
0: amazing how much Easter Market has changed over the years? It's though?
1: incredible. When I first moved to the Hill in the early 90s, this was an outpost surrounded by all kinds of bad things. But now it's in the middle of probably one of the most thriving communities in all of uh, all country, maybe all the world. Yeah. Capitol Hill is an amazing place to live. It's an amazing place to raise your kids uh, an amazing place to get drinks at place like, places like Boxcar.
0: Yeah I can't agree more you know, Zelda and I lived at 8th and C our first year here in town and this next door was an old school and if it wasn't happening at Eastern Market with their farmers market and all the flea market stands there really wasn't a reason to come over here. I mean ton of cliffs was around a few other spots like that but man now I would live here in a heartbeat.
1: Yeah it's actually um, remarkable that old school was uh, really old and um, not the greatest place to kind of hang out although that's where I used to vote back in the old days Uh, they tore the school down and now built up uh, condos which are way too pricey for guys like me and they have uh, really neat uh, restaurants and a great place to get ice cream if you are into ice cream.
0: I saw that. (laughs) Well John is partner with EFB Advocacy and I want to start by asking you to explain what EFB does on behalf of your clients. And, and I noticed that in the website you described the firm as being at the intersection of politics, policy, and the press. And that, that's not a combination that a lot of firms offer around town.
1: Well, what we try to understand uh, when we advocate is that advocacy these days is not just about going to a member of Congress and asking for something. You have to really kind of create a, a, a whole ecosystem messaging is so important these days i mean members of congress don't sound like the old days where they were going to get into the details of legislation they need to be they need to be moved uh, emotionally by uh, the, a bigger narrative and so we help create narratives and the narrative that we have to sometimes you have to create is especially with the media media these days have a outsized role in the legislative process and if you don't have the right message and don't have the ability to go to the media and tell them your story you're probably not going to have much success on Capitol Hill. It's just kind of a, a sad but true uh, fact that we live in, in this, this kind of environment.
0: And when you're talking about media, I assume you're talking about all walks of life, from, the, from old school, traditional, the big dogs, to now you have to think about a social media presence for your clients, don't you?
1: Well, that's one other thing that we try to create for folks, is not just uh, talking to the old-time uh, New York Times or Washington Post, but really creating your own social media presence. You know, we say that you you can approach the media but you can also make your own media and social media is a, a really good way to get messages out creating your own videos creating um, your own narratives um, in many ways creating your own um, blogs um, we have a we, we create podcasts for people uh, not as successful as 80 proof politics wow, but we, I'm not sure about that uh, but we have great podcasts and we our, our view is you got to hit all the different different angles to get uh, influencers to buy your story and then to get policymakers to take your message and and, and move forward on the legislative uh, priorities.
0: Yeah, And you and your partners obviously come at this from a lot of experience and a very diverse experience on a day-to-day basis. I mean, for instance, you are you have a column in the Hill. You're a regular on Sirius XM. I hear you on the POTUS channel all the time. You're on CNN. You even do hardball. Right, yeah, I, 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 but you do. You mentioned podcasts. You are the creator and host of a very popular podcast called The Fury Theory, Theory, where you and your partners John Easton and Alan Belmer, the E and the B of EFB, can take a look at the trending, hot politics, the topics of the day, and you dissect it both from the relevance of the the episode or the politics, but also the efficacy of the message that's being presented. That's that's engaging.
1: Well, oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for listening and watching. It's a, It's Also, it's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Facebook, um, and we also post it on YouTube and uh, anywhere else that you can see things. We also get it on iTunes. But the whole point of it is to bring my two partners in, and uh, Adam Belmar is a former television producer. He worked at ABC News. He not only uh, is a guest on my podcast, he also is the producer. And then we have uh, John Easton, who was uh, former chief of staff to – Gordon Smith and uh, Kelly Ayotte. So he brings a kind of a Senate perspective. I, I'm a House guy, having worked in the House leadership for 15 years. Um, and I, I'm kind of a press secretary. Eastern chief of staff. Um, Belmar, kind of a television producer. And we try to look at all the issues from those three kind of distinct perspectives. Um, and, you know, I think it's, a, it's, it's engaging. We also, we've had many members of Congress on our podcast. We bring in members of, we, uh, pollsters, we bring in journalists. Um, and, you know, we would love to have you on, Bill. That would I'd be love great. to. Yeah.
0: Thank you. So I, it looks like you do this in a studio in your offices.
1: We have a studio in our office. Um, we, have, uh, we, we have a backdrop with the Capitol, um, which we just put up. Um, and it's all in, done in-house, and, you know, what we find is it's, it's a kind of a way to market, but we actually really enjoy talking about the issues. We enjoy having these conversations, uh, and we always tinker with the podcast. Sometimes we make it longer. Sometimes we make it shorter. When I first envisioned the podcast, what I really wanted to do was have kind of the sports junkies, except talking about politics. Oh, right. Um, but we found that some of these podcasts, you just need to be make them shorter. I mean, if you go longer than 30 minutes, people lose interest. Yep. So we, we keep working on, on and tinkering with it. But it's a lot of fun, and it's kind of, a um, like anything else, a little bit of a vanity project for us.
0: Yeah, well, that, you, know, you just described data-proof politics. That's right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Do you ever put that studio to use for your clients?
1: We do. Uh, we've done lots of uh, uh, different videos there. We once produced a, an ad where we had actors come in for uh, – a different um, for a pack of ad um, we we do all our production there and uh, we have you know all kinds of different events for our clients um, and so you know I think our clients like it you know the thing is that a lot of Washington offices are very nervous about engaging with the media they're very nervous about uh, having even talking about lobbying but uh, my view is that if you're going to if you're gonna to try to advocate, you need to be very transparent in what you do. You need to be really honest. And you need to, um, I think that ultimately policymakers like that and I think the media likes if you're honest with them. If you're kind of trying to be, uh, trying to pull one over on people, I think it always backfires.
0: Yeah. You, you mentioned PACS so as one of my previous guests got into this topic as well, particularly this fashionable at the moment uh, desire or statement from candidates to hold off and not take corporate PACs, and yet they're out there soliciting from the same cont- contributors and the providers of those tax. But what is your view of political action committees?
1: You know, I think political action committees are a reform. They were initially a reform from the 1970s. What they provide voters is easy access to so knowing who's giving to who and why they're giving, and also puts limits on the contribution. So anyone who's given to a PAC understands that PACs do not have enough punch to buy any election. What they do do is they give um, the business community, especially, an opportunity, uh, and labor unions as well, an opportunity— well, PACs started with labor unions, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, to give, give an opportunity to get access to a member of Congress and to make their case— but no politician in the right mind is going to take PAC money and then make a policy proposal. Ultimately, in the legislative process, there are always a clash of interests. There's always, you know, if, for example, if you I want to get rid of all plastic straws, on one end, you have people who you know, find plastic straws to be really, really important to their um, well-being. You know, restaurants or. The disability community, and you have to have both those sides get get understood. And policymakers, you know, sometimes they they use this uh, PAC money as a way to solicit ideas and try to figure out how to make the legislative process work better. But the most important thing about PACs is they provide transparency. And what the voters really want is the ability to know who's given to who and what kind of impact they're having on the legislative process. Yeah, most
0: voters don't appreciate the extent to which PACs have to file on a regular basis, report every contribution from employees and every dollar that goes out the door to candidates. And there are strict limits on what you can do with those.
1: There are strict limits on what you can do. And the problem is these days you have these super PACs where you have billionaires really trying to buy elections um, or not even buy elections, get their kind of their views suffused in the legislative process It's a really big microphone it's it's a big microphone if you have if you know if you give five thousand dollars to a corporate PAC, gives five thousand dollars to a candidate that doesn't get any attention but if you give them a million dollars in a campaign that's going to get their attention or two million dollars some of these billionaires are given. 10 to $20 billion. Yeah, or, they're, or they're creating a
0: surround sound with all that money that's clearly aimed at get driving some initiative or agenda.
1: I think of someone like a Tom Steyer, who is the billionaire who announced he's running for president. His whole thing is he wants to impeach Donald Trump. And so he's spending m- hundreds of millions of dollars on this whole idea of, of impeaching Donald Trump. Another guy, Michael Bloomberg, he's spending hundreds of millions of dollars to ban guns you, know, you may or may not agree with that uh, banning guns but you know that this is something that the American people should be engaged in and not just one billionaire from New York City
0: well, let me circle back if you would to working with the press and media in particular I have a vision that what you're doing on behalf of your clients in that regard is sometimes offense and sometimes defense do you guys get into crisis management
1: we do get in crisis management um, you know my View of the media has changed over the years. Uh, I've always knew that they were kind of left-leaning, um, but they have this kind of view of the of the president that is, you know, a little bit beyond that right now. It's a very ad- advocacy-based. That being said, I have so many members of the media who I've had such a great relationship with for so many years. I've worked with them on providing them information when I work for the Speaker, giving them kind of okay, what's going to happen, and going on often. Sometimes trying to get stories published that were, you know, probably good for us, bad for them, uh, but also you know also taking in incoming. I was joking with my my colleagues today that when I worked in the in the in the media world uh, for uh, Speaker Hastert, I had to expect just about every Day at 5:40 on a Friday, getting a negative story coming my way from the media, and say, hey, can you, would you comment on this? And it would really kind of screw up your weekend. Um, but you know, th- through that, if you, if you're honest with, on your approach, and you are honest about returning phone calls, uh, and if you agree to disagree on ideology, but try to get the basic facts out there, you can establish a really good rapport with the media and I've used that to help my clients get stories or help kinda provide more granularity or more facts to a story that they're writing. Um, I would assume
0: that's often the case because my limited experience with media has been that they're not gonna buy a story you're selling if it's not a good story or it's not in their the design of what they're trying to write.
1: I think that's right. Um, Now ultimately sometimes you can talk reporters out of writing a bad story
0: yeah, there's a lot of value in that, I'm sure.
1: Uh, and there's a lot of value in that. More likely, what you'll do is try to get them to have a different emphasis on the story, so it's not as negative to your client or your boss. Um, but you know, the most important thing is to try to get try to figure out what they're writing. You know, so many people don't return the phone calls of reporters because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. And what you you're just, I always believe believe that being a press secretary working in the in this side of being a flack the most important thing is intelligence gathering you're you're trying to in, in, in get intelligence not only from the media but also from your boss also from all the other folks and you're trying to get a bigger picture of what's going on you never have the whole picture and you'll never have a complete picture if you don't talk to the media and find out what they're writing only way you know what what they're what they're going to ultimately write is by talking to them
0: and people can't you can't be afraid so in your opinion John how has the president changed that dynamic, that relationship with the media?
1: Um, well, I think a couple of things have changed that dynamic. First is the, the the business model of the media themselves. I mean, they've gone through a kind of catastrophic moment in their history where they basically gave have been giving all of their content away for free on the Internet, and they don't really know how to get um, – they don't know how to get – make money on their stories so that's a that's a huge problem for them and so they've they've kind of had to adapt their their media model now because this is all about clickbait and what trump has done is that you know the media doesn't try to appeal to everybody right now they try to appeal to a specific group of people who really enjoy what they're hearing from from that media so you even heard it from the new york times you know they Dean Bank- Bankett, who's the the head of the New York Times, said, listen, if we're not going to talk about impeachment, we've got to talk about something else because that's what our view- our listeners, our viewers, our, our readers want to hear. They want to hear how we're going to get Trump. And so it's it's been a – and they th- that's important for them because that's how they grow their circulation. It's not about all the news that's fit to print. It's all the news that, the, the, that our li- readers want to listen or, or read. And so that's been a real change. And, of course, you know, Trump is – Ma- a master at creating clickbait, the other thing' that's, that tr- Trump is masterful at it used to be that the president would make news whoever the president was, and then the reporters would report on that news, and that 's how people would initially hear what was on the president 's mind, not through what directly from the president, but more usually through a the reporting of what the president was saying. The president through the use of Twitter goes directly to the to the voters goes directly to his listeners and goes directly to the media and says what he wants to say and that has changed everything because there's there's not this there's not this whole kind of um, screen out there there's not there's not a it, it's 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 undiluted Trump and undiluted Trump is either a good thing or a bad thing but it's really put the it's it's made the press react to him as opposed to him re- reacting to the press and that's changed the dynamic Completely.
0: Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts, or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel. You know, with this explosion of media over the past ten years, even more, uh, in many different venues through many different portals. I mean, I'm carrying in my pocket now a way to keep up on just about everything I care to keep up with there certainly has been a democratization of press and the media and where people how people get their news but is my opinion right that this has also created more of a narrow casting where we start to live in these echo chambers and only click the bait that is enticing to us
1: Well I think you see that a lot um, in the decline and fall of the rural or local newspapers. Um, people don't get their news from, from the local sources anymore. They really get their news, especially outside the beltway through Fox News. Uh, and Fox News has a, and they're a client of mine. Fox News is a client of mine. So I say this very nicely, but they've had a tremendous impact on how people get the news. Um, and so there's narrow casting there. Um, there's also, uh, you know, MSNBC and CNN are going for a much more liberal audience. Their audience tends to be much smaller, um, than, than Fox News, um, and so there's there's that impact, and then you have all the rise. I mean, the New York Times and Washington Post have decided to go. We're going to go full for the anti-Trump voter. You know, and they haven't even they. they I mean, you can read the Washington Post and see the sports section, and then they'll largely stay away from politics. But everything else is very much anti-Trump because they're trying to get themselves geared towards that narrowcasting, as you point out. And there's a feedback loop. I mean, there's no chance really to understand what everybody else is thinking or saying because you know there's just like this kind of sense that we're just going to preach to our own choir and we don't want our choir listening to anybody else so it's a I think it's a a troubling um, troubling time it kind of harkens back to the beginnings of the republic when Thomas Jefferson had his newspapers and John Adams had his newspapers and the federalists and anti-federalists would would go at it and say some of the most uh, this very nasty things, uh, some of which turned out to be true. I mean, John Adams accused, and actually it was Alexander Hamilton who accused uh, Thomas Jefferson of having a slave mistress, and he it, it turned out he was that was that was not fake news. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, and and the,
0: all that was countered by Jefferson's cronies leaking the story of Hamilton's affair. Which right. is also true.
1: Right. <laughs> so we, 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 we go back. Uh, you know, one of the one of the well, great that's things. why we
0: had the that's why Adams and the Federalists had the Alien Sedition Act. Right, right? that was at the heart of that.
1: Uh, no no doubt about that. And you know, that it's uh, from the very beginnings of the Republic. So I I don't I'm not a doom and gloomer in a sense that we've gone through a lot in our nation's history. It's been it's been a long slog. The idea of an un- impartial press was a brief moment in time. Really, got, kind of rose up uh, first during the Second World War, and then um, and then after when, when we were fighting the Russians in the Cold War, mm-hmm. um, where they kind of. wrote, But even before the, the before the Second World War, you had Robert McCormick and the Chicago Tribune that was virulently anti yeah. anti Roosevelt and right. really very much isolationist. Um, so this is kind of a we had a brief period where someone like a Walter Cronkite could be seen as kind of the dean and, and the arbiter of all truth, but it turned out that Walter Cronkite was actually pretty liberal mm-hmm. and had his own viewpoints, and they didn't necessarily, he wasn't just telling the facts, he was tell, telling the facts as he sees them. So the media is, it's an important institution, it's some, it needs to be valued, but it also needs to be understood, and it's changing.
0: Yeah. John, you've obviously dealt with that in many different ways, not just with EFB advocacy. You've had a great career after you left the Hill and you went back for a while and then all that. But my yes, gosh, you've been uh, president of communications and director of government affairs of one of the top public affairs firms in town, Quinn Gillespie. I think one of your first stops off the hill was with Barbara Griffith and Rogers, which right. in its heyday was kind of leading the charge and redefining what an advocacy firm could be. And then you were uh, EVP, was it, for the Motion Picture Association?
1: Yeah, I ran uh, Global Government Affairs and Global Public Affairs for the Motion Picture Association. It was kind of Jack Valenti, who was a great guy, had just left, and he appointed Dan Glickman. Glickman needed someone with the Republican credentials to to deal with a relatively, let's put it, really hostile Congress, especially a House majority that didn't really love Hollywood and didn't love the fact that Hollywood... Uh, kept um, hiring Democrats to lobby them. Um, and so I, I did both Global global Government Affairs and Global um, Public Affairs, and I th- really thought, even back then, that the best way to advocate was to have a robust lobbying uh, presence, but also a really, you know, robust effort to construct the right narrative, and that usually has to happen through media, um, coming up with good events, um, coming up with creative messaging and trying to find the the best ways to really deliver that message in all the different tools in your toolbox.
0: So either there at MPAA or at any of your other stops in your professional uh, career outside of the Hill, was there one or two unique client experiences that either you didn't anticipate or was such a curveball that it was a unique challenge?
1: I think one of the the most unique challenges, uh, especially when you are um, in a business like I am, where you're starting a new business, is it's actually really hard to get clients. Mm. It's hard to get clients, and marketing is really really important. Um, I think the other thing that you learn is that stuff happens, and you're, you get a chance to work on some really really big stories. I've one of my clients when I had my I left the Motion Picture Association to start my own firm, and um, I worked uh, on communications when the BP oil spill happened, oh, yeah. and my dad used to work for BP. Uh, he, when he was, he was in the oil business, he worked actually worked for Amoco, and for me, it was kind of like, wow, this is a big deal, and it's, a, it's, 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 it's amazing the things that, that go on. We had a client once where we, it was the, it was the rate coalition, and we were kind of dedicated to uh, getting the corporate tax rate more competitive with the rest of the globe. And we hired a uh, Irish actor. Well, he wasn't Irish. He's was an American with an Irish accent. And he he thanked Congress for not reforming their tax code from an Irish perspective because the Irish had a 10% ta- corporate tax rate, and they loved the fact that we had such a high one because all the American companies are going over there. It was a, thanks Congress for not reforming your tax code. And it was uh, <laughs> we had, we had a lot of fun Brilliant. with it. Yeah, we, <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that. And then, well, the, the the best fun part of it was I I I showed that ad to my friends who work in the Irish media and they put it on the front times of the Irish Times and the number one comment about it was how bad the guy's accent was that's right, that's right. <laughs> so you know right. yeah i mean i i think that ultimately you know if you have fun with the job and you try to be clever it it can be very rewarding and i think that ultimately you know you you got to kind of go beyond your kind of normal stuff and try to be as fresh as possible, with come up with fresh ideas, and you know, if you can offer some different insights, it's, it's it's great.
0: So I would love to pivot here and talk about your path to glory and how you got started in this town and the great experiences that you had. So let me let me just briefly run the list, and then you can fill in any gaps that I omit. But you were uh, communications director, majority whip. You were a chief floor assistant. the whip at one time at a very uh, unique time in American congressional history when the Republicans took over the majority after decades of being in the minority. You also worked for the man who was the minority leader leading up to that time, Bob Michael from Illinois. Was he your first stop in town?
1: So I I got to Congress in 1989. Uh, You know, I, I moved from Washington, from Chicago to Washington. I didn't really know anybody, didn't have any really great contacts. But somehow my, my dad knew somebody who knew somebody, and I, I contacted this guy named Bill Gavin, and he was a speechwriter for Bob Michael. And I told Bill, and Bill was a great old guy who had been a speechwriter to um, uh, Richard Nixon and also to Spiro Agnew, and he's one of the great speechwriters in history. And I said, listen, I'm Irish Catholic. I'm conservative. I need a job. He, he looked at me, and he said, all right, well, see what I'm i can going to do. And he, he got me a internship where I became very good at fixing the copy machine. <laughs> and one of my first tasks as an intern, Bob Michael was an absolutely huge Cub fan. And I'm I'm from the south side of Chicago, and I'm a White Sox fan, and I hate the Cubs. But he asked me once to keep an eye on the Cubs game for him because it was an important series, and he wanted me to watch the Cubs that was my job as an intern. Um, yeah, it wasn't the worst job, but it, it wasn't the greatest job either because I hate the Cubs. Um, but I did, and I successfully was able to relay to him that the Cubs lost, which gave me great pleasure. Uh, but So I, I worked for Bob for five and a half years, uh, eventually becoming a speechwriter to him, and, and I, I started this group called the Republican Theme Team. And it's a bunch of members of Congress who go to the House floor and give one-minute speeches and special orders, and based on themes, and we first started this as an effort to get George H. W. Bush reelected, and we would write speeches. And George W. Bush came to our meetings, and you know, we—that's how I got to know him. Okay. Um, and that's not—he wouldn't know me very well, but that's how I—that's where I first met him. And we would write all these speeches, uh, and you know, it was one of those things where George H. W. Bush, you know know—he—he was probably a very good president. But he wasn't a very good campaigner. And he also, he was focused on the international and not domestic priorities. And the problem is that the voters don't really care that you won a war. They want to know what, you do, what you've what you done for them lately. Well,
0: Clinton famously exploited that. He
1: famously exploited it. You know, it's the economy, stupid. And um, so I learned a valuable lesson, which was if you're going to be in politics, you got to listen to what the voters want, not not what you want, what the voters want. And so Clinton became president. We continued to the theme team.
0: Uh, I decided- you know, let me just stop you there for a sec, because you, you are accredited around town, and kind of pioneering this coordinated one-minute campaign on yeah. the House floor. Take a step back and explain to our listeners what a one-minute speech is, in case they don't know.
1: So, at the beginning, if you're on C-SPAN, and this is where C-SPAN became kind of an important delivery device, if you're on watch C-SPAN, at the beginning of each session of Congress, they give members of Congress an opportunity to speak for one minute. On whatever topic they want to talk on, it doesn't have to be. A, it could be whatever they could talk. And typically in the past, what they would talk about is something in their local communities. they would talk about their local little league team, or how Aunt Gertrude did this, or you know this this thing. They they would focus on the community. We kind of changed that because we were trying to come up with a unified message. And so what we found is that the average soundbite is about fifteen seconds, maybe a little bit less. And so. You spend one minute, it, it's actually a really good way to get on TV if you're really clever. And so what we try to do is we try to kind of set up the soundbite by saying a couple of things, have the soundbite, and saying a couple of other things, ultimately just geared at the media and and geared at, and we if you did it enough four or five times in a row, you might hit something. And this is, keep in mind, this is in the days before cable, right? right? I mean, the, the CNN, I think, might have been around, but... No one else was, and no one else was paying attention. But the idea was to keep hammering away at certain topics. And we—I remember—I wrote one speech talking about Bill Clinton's trips to Moscow, um, trying to implicate, you know, kind of give the uh, impression that perhaps he was a stooge for the KGB. As a matter of fact, I might have had someone say that. I also wrote a speech once for a guy named Cass Ballinger, and he—and he, and he wrote—he said in a one-minute speech 15 times that Bill Clinton lied. It was it was good enough speech that we got picked up in the Washington Post, and the Washington Post wrote a whole column about it. And it also changed the rules of the House because Tom Foley and Bill Clinton was not president yet; he was he was running for president. It changed the rules in the House, so I feel kind of proud of this to say that not only could you you had to respect the traditions not only for presidents and for senators and for House members, but that also included candidates for the White House. And so I felt like it's my little, you know, my little change to the House rules. And so, you know, for, for me, it was a really, I was a young kid. I was 27 years old. And I had all this power. I'd write all these speeches. I'd have all these members, basically, you know, write, read whatever I wanted, very few edits. And for me, it was, it was a tremendous introduction to Congress and also making an impact the changing Congress. So anyone young out there, you can make an impact even if you, you know, even if you're young.
0: Did you have that background in college? Were you were you doing writing and communications and all that? You know,
1: my I, I was a journalist dropout, and um, I went to Marquette University, uh, and I was in journalism school for a year or two. But I found that the liberal, the media, the journalism teachers, a little bit too liberal for my taste. So I ended up going to. Uh, transferring to the history department which is still pretty liberal but you know what the hell if yeah, you kind of I love history and uh but I love to I love to write and I would always write uh, all kinds of things in the local newspapers and then I I stayed at Marquette um got a master's degree at Marquette and I got a master's degree in British and Irish history and I can tell you this there's nothing that's less likely to get you a job than getting a, a, <laughs> a master's degree in British and Irish history and so um but I, what it gave me is a great opportunity to do even more writing and learn to write more and give you a great historical perspective of, of, of different things. And um, I think that the, the the history and the kind of deep understanding that I got from from studying history has been really useful for Washington. And I, well, How so? You know, um, people come to Washington studying poli-sci, and poli-sci is fine. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but there's really not that much of a science to politics. It's kind of... It's all personal interaction, and it's all based on history. And um, so many of the great movements that we go through today are based in history. And you know, you have to—you can predict someone like a Donald Trump coming coming up if you know we are in a historic moment. And um, and history kind of gives you a great sense of 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 the great movements of history, give you a great sense of. of that we've all been through here before. We've all seen these kind of, you know, um, personal foibles. We've all seen these social movements and what's past is prologue. But it, it just gives you a, a further depth in, in understanding where you are as part of a movement. Uh, so that requires you to really kind of go out and learn it and read the, 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 all the literature behind it, all the kind of what 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 happened on that day, read the newspapers, you know, read the kind of the, Read the history, and so many people just don't do that, and they feel like they're living in a unique time, and all everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. Well, we've we've survived a lot of stuff in this country, and you know, I think that uh, things are are not that great now, but they're always not that great.
0: Yeah. That leads me to something I wanted to ask you in this podcast: is how do you view politics in this unique moment in time versus either when you started with Bob Michael or you were doing the theme team?
1: Well, I think that the, the, the biggest difference is how things move quicker, quick, quickly now. They move quicker than they ever have. The, the media narratives are moving quicker. The media covers things quicker. Everything is like on a 24, uh, 24 hour, seven day a week. Everyone's constantly churning, but nothing's happening. So we, we're moving faster, but we're going nowhere. It's like a big treadmill, and um, I think people get really frustrated. And I think that they keep going for the the easy thing. They keep going for the um, they keep going for the, the shiny object. They they they're not as they're not as deep like they should be. Um, so I think that's part of part of there's a shallowness in our culture that lends itself to poor legislating, and I think that's a real huge problem.
0: Um, Where does the role of compromise fit into that difference between that and now?
1: Well, you know, and I think that compromise is obviously an important part of the legislative process. It's also not an easy part of the process, and it requires um, stakeholders from various different sides to agree that compromise is better. Getting half a loaf is better than getting nothing. Um, And, you know, this wasn't always compromise wasn't always the, the case. You think back to civil rights movement and how the civil rights era, people didn't really want to compromise back then. And, you know, it was really kind of the personal courage of Lyndon Baines Johnson to say, you know what, I'm going to take a political hit here and we're going to lose the solid South for maybe a generation, maybe two generations, but we've got to do this because it's the right thing to do. You can say that in that region they were not they were not happy with with that compromise and so ultimately you know there's there's the importance of compromise you know i think back to my two bosses my boss bob michael and his uh, uh, ability to work with tip o'neill and that was always kind of the famous kind of tip o'neill and bob michael working together they would play golf together they had this relationship the fact is they wanted to beat each other's brains in all the time tip o'neill you know gets credit for scheduling um, Ronald Reagan's economic program but the only reason he scheduled that economic program is because Bob Michael had the votes. And I think the I think the, the biggest difference of what's happened over the last 45-50 years is that the solid South went from being Southern Democrats to being Republicans. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party became a conservative party and the Democratic Party became a liberal party and so it became much more difficult to reach compromise for these two ideological factions, and um, th- and that's why, that's only getting worse. I mean, the, the conservatives are becoming more conservative, uh, and the liberals are becoming more liberal. Now, you know, the party leaders are trying to become more sophisticated, and they're trying to nominate the the most electable politicians. But you know, the, the American people have a way of kind of saying, "Hey, listen, you, you you might be party leaders, but we're the ones with the power." And so, the party le- leaders only act effectively if they're listening to their voters.
0: You know, John, you talked about the value of paying attention to history, learning the history of events and not getting caught up in this unique moment that we always seem to be living in. What other advice might you have for someone who's coming to town and trying to get started in this policy realm that is D.C.? I think
1: that understanding that you can make an impact. If you work hard, if you get to have a wide network of people, if you're friendly. If you, uh, early on especially, don't make too many enemies because this is a very small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's it's very important to to also know what your talents, where your talents are. Um, some people are good writers, and that's an important quantity. Some people are good organizers, and that's very important. Some people are good at raising money and talking to people. and But the other thing I would say is, get your foot in the door and then work your way through it and it's important where you get your foot in the door make sure that it's it's simpatico with your your beliefs Uh, don't work for someone that you don't agree with don't work with someone that you dislike Is, is that
0: more important than trying to find that perfect job right out the gate
1: i think it's it's really really important to understand what you believe in and then work to pursue those goals and that sometimes has a process of discovery um but if you don't if you work for someone that you don't agree with get out of there because it could it could be bad Um, but ultimately you know be be happy to fix the copy machine if that's what you have to do especially if you're young and and ultimately your worth is by your you you define your worth by your willingness to work hard and find ways to make your team succeed and if you can do that you can be very very successful in washington
0: that is solid advice and what a great way to wrap up this episode of 80 Proof Politics. John, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. And I want to thank Andy and the folks at Boxcar Tavern for hosting us. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half empty or half full, there's plenty of time to fill your drink. Cheers. Cheers.